In international relations, there is this widespread assumption that when security politics enters an emergency mode, the real power lies with top decision makers, disempowering civil society. My aim is to challenge this elite-centric approach that dominates much of the security studies literature. What is the power of the powerless in security politics, after all? That's the question that originally intrigued me, as I kept noticing citizen groups in local contexts that were actively making security demands, yet their voices constantly got neglected by analysts in favor of the security talk of political elites. This episode looks at the role of civil society as a security actor, building on examples from movements and organized groups in Poland and Ukraine, additional questions emerge on how and to what extent do grassroots players shape the policymaking, the political and the security processes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode looks at the role of civil society as a security actor. And for this topic, we have Bogdana Kurillo with us. And hi, Bogdana. I'm so glad and excited you could actually join us for this conversation. Hi, Petros. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. Just a few words about our guest. Bogdana Kurillo is a PhD candidate at the University College London the, at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. She is a recipient of the Victor and Rita Swoboda Memorial Scholarship, the Overseas Research Scholarship, and the School of Slavonic and East European Studies Excellence Scholarship. Her research interests include security theory, international political sociology, social movements, populism, and Eastern Europe. So, Bohdana, uh, again, uh, thank you so much for joining for this episode. I'm just going to ask you to give us a quick overview of what it is, uh, what's your work about, what is it that you are currently focusing on? Well, my dissertation investigates how civil society arises and operates as a security actor in contexts of perceived emergency. In international relations, there is this widespread assumption that when security politics enters an emergency mode, the real power lies with top decision makers, disempowering civil society. My aim is to challenge this elite-centric approach that dominates much of the security studies literature. Uh, what is the power of the powerless in security politics, after all? That's the question that originally intrigued me, as I kept noticing citizen groups in local contexts that were actively making security demands, yet their voices constantly got neglected by analysts in favor of the security talk of political elites. One of such cases is the Polish pro-choice movement, and in my research I look at the attempts of women's rights groups to articulate the right to access reproductive health services as a matter of security. Another context where we are witnessing a huge mobilization of civil society is Ukraine, uh, both in 2014 and now, Ukrainians did not wait for the state to tell them what to do, they self-organized instead. So I decided to examine the role that Ukrainian society groups have played in defending national security. Overall, I want to integrate civil society into the study of security and reveal its capacity for voice and agency. 
you know, viewing civil society through a security lens is just so interesting. I mean, myself, I'm also in uh, my my research focuses on security, and I just um, very interested in what you've just mentioned about the literature, right? Because in the literature, there are contestations over what is actually meant by the term civil society. So what is your own understanding of such a term and how is how possible and how easy is it to conceptualize it and describe it as one single unifying actor? That's a really good question. Um... You're right in highlighting that one, one cannot study civil society as just one homogenous uh, unitary agent. In fact, what we are witnessing is the ascendance of a non-traditional kind of security actor that's characterized by multiplicity, plurality and fluidity. So I understand civil society as this congregation of different citizen groups undertaking collective action in the pursuit of common goals and interests. This definition is intentionally broad, as I don't strive to arrive at one fixed definition of civil society, for it is not some object out there waiting to be discovered. Instead, I look for the groups and practices that constitute civil society in a specific context and in a, in a relation to a specific issue. In the literature, as you mentioned, um, we also see this tendency to think of civil society in a narrow sense of formal NGOs. Uh, this includes grassroots engagement outside of formalized organizations and structures. And that's why my concept of society is more locally embedded and includes actors ranging from traditional CSOs to social movements and spontaneously created grassroots uh, informal groups. You know, through this understanding of yours when it comes to civil society, how would you say we can... Um, what, what are the key elements that uh, we can attribute to civil society to describe it as a security actor? How, and, and, the, and therefore, how does such a security actor initiate policy in a grassroots manner, like in a, in a bottom-up context? Mm. So generally speaking, there are two things that uh, make civil society a security actor. Uh, the participation in constructing discourses about security and secondly, secondly, the undertaking of practices that correspond to those discourses. Self-site engagement may include things like convincing certain audiences about the presence of a threat, advocating specific measures, and providing affected communities with the means to tackle security problems. Uh, for example, since the start of the full-scale Russian invasion, uh, more than 100,000 people have in Ukraine uh, have joined the territorial defense forces. Some have entered the cyber army. A number of groups have also been helping um, the government with purchasing the government, the army with purchasing military equipment and also providing aid to hospitals. Um, in Ukraine, we also see many groups that uh, were spontaneously created in, on local levels to distribute humanitarian assistance to IDPs but also to deliver food and medical supplies to the populations of uh, Russian-occupied cities. Uh, that's how society may function as a security provider, in addition to just uh, shaping security discourses. And we see a similar situation in Poland, where local as well as transnational feminist groups have been 
offering various forms of assistance to women in need of abortion services. And now you might be able to tell that I try to move away from the concern with whether society is capable of directly influencing state policy and formal decision making. That's because its agency tends to take more invisible and informal forms. Uh, if we overlook those, then we will end up reiterating the false and yet common argument that post-Soviet and post-communist civil societies are chronically weak because they are less institutionalized and because scholars keep focusing uh, on the level of policymaking, ignoring the rich array of activities outside of it. In the end, before assessing the impact of civil society, I consider that we should first ask the agents themselves how they perceive their function and contribution, and only then start making judgments. From what I observed, um, these everyday practices have mattered more to, to the actors I interviewed than their ability to initiate policy or things like that. Hmm. You know, you've mentioned quite a few interesting keywords there, like the everyday practicing, the um, the perceptions. It's it's all so interesting and uh, things that I can relate as well when it, when it comes to the uh, theoretical or the conceptual groundwork that you have to do when you're describing this. Obviously, when you're conceptualizing um, and fitting civil society within the security framework. But what kind of framework do you use? Like, what what would an appropriate framework in your view be to use when studying civil society as a security actor? Well, to understand how civil society groups participate in security politics, we first must understand the meanings that provide them with reasons for action. This implies the need to engage with the contextual understandings of actors, to think of security at their level. And here, scholars could benefit from employing what, in my research, I call a vernacular contextual approach. This approach foregrounds the perspectives uh, of non-elite everyday agents in security politics, hence vernacular. It also emphasizes the meanings uh, of concepts uh, and particularly the, the way they differ depending on the context and actors involved. Through interpretive textual analysis, I interpret what concepts such as security and emergency uh, mean to civil society groups. Uh, and I draw on my interest for them to find that out. Um, so for instance, uh, in the case of the Polish pro-choice movement, I found that security was resignified in the language of Judith Butler's idea of livable life, emphasizing the conditions required for the flourishing of life as key to security. This idea directly challenged the understanding of security as bare survival that dominated the elite and anti-choice discourses and which also dominates um, the security literature at, at the moment. In Ukraine's case, I also found that the conception of emergency as a state of exception, which prevails in international uh, relations scholarship, fails to capture the way emergency was imagined on the ground. The idea of emergency as exception describes a situation where decision makers invoke emergency as a pretext for acting outside of normal political rules and norms. In contrast, uh, by looking at the practices of Ukrainian society groups, I could see that they embodied a different idea of emergency. Um, and I refer to this idea as 
as emergency as emancipation, where it appears as an extraordinary moment of spontaneous beginnings that allows marginalized groups to challenge established power relations and structures vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, but also international actors such as NATO and the EU. So uh, that's the differences that I, I particularly cherish in my work and I try to accentuate them. Mm, yeah, it veers on the, uh, you know, the critical framing, the critical approach within security studies. And it's it, it gives us, you know, this kind of framework gives us the opportunity to understand, as you've said, security as something beyond survival, not just sticking to the more traditional understanding and which is very often linked to defense and and all that mm -hmm. we go beyond that we go and look at the routinization of certain actions or policy and that that's very important as a contribution i would say uh, but taking this a bit on the empirical side um looking at poland because this is something that is central to your research how have civil society groups initially reacted to issues pertaining to reproductive rights in Poland? And uh, if possible, if you can give us like a, an overview of what the situation was before and after the imposition of the 2021 restrictions on abortion. Mm -hmm. So um, the pro-choice movement first mobilized in 2016 in response to the proposal to completely ban abortion. Um, and that mobilization led the Polish parliament to reject that bill. The massive and, uh, national and international protests that happened that year came as a surprise, because before then, women's rights organizations had been largely unsuccessful in attracting public support for liberalizing abortion, even in the wake of similar anti-abortion proposals. It's partly because they used to frame um, reproductive rights in the language of individual choice. What changed, I argue, was the way in which the ruling party and the anti-choice campaign began framing abortion in 2015, which was done through the act of securitization. In other words, from a regular political issue, abortion was transformed into a pressing matter of national security. Um, the anti-choice rhetoric turned uh, women seeking abortion services into an existential enemy that threatens Polish children, uh, Polish national identity and its statehood as such. Um, this significantly raised the stakes and led women's rights groups to change their strategy in response. They also began framing abortion as a question of security, uh, that is, as a matter of life and death for women. And that appeared to have a strong galvanizing effect. Furthermore, by, by the time the near total um, abortion ban was announced in, in late 2020, the feminist side of Polish civil society had already learned how to self-organize, which explains why this time its mobilization was even more unprecedented uh, in its scope. Um, although the law still came into force, its impact was somewhat lessened by the fact that since 2016 there had emerged uh, a robust feminist network of care and support through which women were helping each other. That's the main difference between the Polish uh, pro-choice movement today and some, you know, five, six years ago. However, the lack of access to legal termination care remains a major threat to the security of Polish women, 
and now even more so than before. Uh, it should also be alarming for us that the anti-choice groups continue to push for a further tightening of the abortion law. So we should keep an eye on the events in Poland. Yeah, we should. So the important takeaway from this is that through this kind of framing, this uh, securitization process, this act of speech, by insisting on certain norms, beliefs, and values and embedding it into the idea, the, this identity that um, you know the uh, they were constructing, it was also as a tool of justifying these additional restrictions. And it's interesting to see the response, as you've highlighted, how society, how civil society was organized in response to this. Let me quickly jump on to Ukraine now. Uh, it's uh, also obviously a very hot topic and probably a very difficult and, and well, not difficult, but maybe mm-hmm. challenging in, in different ways as a topic. In, in other work that I've done myself, I've seen, and this is something that I'm, this is like probably not a very traditional approach, but in other work that I've done in uh, cases like Lebanon, I've seen civil society groups being infiltrated by either other forces in a bid to control the discourse, the practices, the narrative, and so on. And when we look at Ukraine, there is a state, uh, there's a full-scale invasion by Russia, uh, not justified in uh, at all. Uh, the, the, the what's happening right now in Ukraine is horrible, and we cannot, uh, you know, condemn it enough. And it, but something that's probably not been studied enough is the response of civil society groups. Okay, uh, which I this is why I find it so interesting to look at civil society as a security actor. Do you feel that? There has been at any point that other forces like, say, populists or hardliners or whatnot have tried to control civil society's uh, practices, narratives, discourse in Ukraine, Uh, either, you know, during the war, now, the invasion, or even before at some point? Oh, so I think that the idea of infiltration is itself problematic because it presumes a very civil conception of civil society, uh, where groups are always legal in their means and peaceful in their intentions. This implies a quite a normative bias towards a particular normatively positive image of civil society, which is imagined as a better alternative to corrupt state elites. Um, but this view of civil society as a normative ideal has actually little to do with reality in most real-world contexts, not just Ukraine. Like elsewhere, Ukrainian civil society is very diverse and complex. Um, Of course, there have been some instances of so-called uncivil behavior associated with far-right groups, um, and I'm sure that uh, our audiences have heard of them. At the same time, it's also true that the Western and especially Russian media tend to exaggerate the far-right problem in Ukraine, which is actually much smaller compared to some of the Western states. The Azov regiment has attracted um, a a lot of attention in recent years, but few are aware that since the time it emerged in 2014, it has has been significantly reformed. Um, The key far-right groups 
that used to be associated with it are no longer part of it, and their influence on Ukrainian society is frankly marginal. Um, in terms of populists, you may know that I've done a separate project on populism in which I argue that populism can take different forms and it's not uh, necessarily a negative phenomenon. Um, in Ukraine's case, mm -hmm. uh, the key populist here is Zelensky, and his populism is on a more liberal side. Um, at the beginning of his presidency, he even pledged to de-escalate the conflict by seeking compromise with Russia. Um, and in fact, before the war, uh, the, the full-scale invasion, I mean, the push for a more hardline stance on national security had come from within civil society, and many civil society groups were um, dissatisfied with Zelensky's leadership because they didn't see it to be, you know, um, strong enough in its resistance towards against Russia. Uh, so, yeah, but given what's happening right now, I, I don't think that it was that unreasonable to push for stronger sec uh, national security measures. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. In, in hindsight, obviously, we can argue that, definitely. Um, yeah, it's just such uh, also very challenging to see how, what else is there. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when they ask us to go through and deliver an analysis on an ongoing situation. It, it, it sometimes feels as if some, they're trying to force us into coming up with a prophecy or anything like yeah. that, which is obviously wrong. It's not a, that's not analytical. That's like, that's just essentially circulating facts or assumptions. But what we are doing here is very interesting to see that you using obviously hindsight to analyze and assess the situation and even, you know, uh, talk about the fluidity of these terms that we have, be it a populist, be it uh, obviously civil society, which is also contested as a term. But based on this conversation that we've had in general, what kind of lessons, what what are the most important takeaways for Poland and Ukraine? Mm -hmm. So both of my case studies suggest that we must acknowledge the micro levels, uh, micro level forms of agency um, when it comes to ordinary people and uh, the power that they exercise in emergency politics. Uh, my argument is that through collective action, ordinary citizens can become empowered to speak and practice security. And emergency can be precisely that moment which opens a window of opportunities for civil society groups to intervene in the making of security on their own terms. And in particular, it allows groups to inaugurate a different politics of security based on a different type of the political. Um, we are used to thinking of emergency politics as being about Schmittian relations of enmity, uh, as a struggle between, between us and them. Um, and here security is assumed to follow the logic of war. And in Ukraine's case, it is undeni undeniable that such logic is present. Um, still, in both of my case studies, I discovered that civil society groups have equally been guided by the idea of politics as the process of acting together in solidarity. At stake, in this politics is um, the political founded on relations of interdependence and the idea that the vulnerabilities created by the Russian invasion uh, or the near total abortion ban, which I mentioned earlier, in Poland, uh, can only be addressed through collective forces. Security then has had a more positive meaning as security to rather than just security from. 
So a bottom-up approach is useful because it reveals that security and emergency politics can operate differently at the level of civil society. Mm, yeah, it, it does operate differently. We don't, and it's it's very important to think outside the box. And what I mean by outside the box is that the traditional understanding of formulating policy. So the uh, starting off from the executive and then you know trickling down which is not always uh, useful because you know policymakers very often live in their own bubble don't they like it, it's this lack of communication with what's happening on the ground and at grassroots level it's so important to derive and draw in the uh, a better understanding by not just by studying not just within academia but also to open up some paths to, to open communication to be able to understand better what what different um i don't want to say demands but like uh what different claims means, claims yeah. maybe claims yes yeah. so what kind of claims these groups have and what they want to have presented to them at the table it's uh, e even if you know even if they're wrong even if some of them are wrong it's important to engage in conversation with that but it's also the question of how do we know whether they are wrong or not? For, for who decides, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Who decides? And is it what? Are we going with the norms to say that, oh, policy is not done in such a way, so therefore they're by default wrong? No, 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 that's not, <laughs> you know, it's it's not just one-way street in this situation. It's like I've a... also, uh, sorry to interrupt you, so I've also had this case where I present my research at conferences and I'm being asked by scholars, uh, why would this agents want more security? You know, mm. security is such a negative thing. You know, it activates this, you know, Schmittian state of exception. Mm. And I'm just looking at them. And uh, are you really going to tell women in Poland who are, you know, struggling to get access to abortion that they don't need more security? Uh, it's just, yeah. Sometimes academia is just too um, disconnected from the real world and real um, discourses that ordinary people use. Mm. And on the other hand, though, there are academics like yourself who have, uh, you know, you're advocating for security uh, and also this concept of emergency as emancipation. So you're looking at security also, on the other hand, in this context, as something more positive rather than negative, right? And it's important to have this conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to show that it's not only negative mm. and it's not only positive. We don't, we shouldn't jump into extremes. We should just see uh, what, how the actors, you know, perceive security, what it is for them. It may be negative when we speak about, for example, uh, how uh, feminist groups perceive security as articulated by right-wing groups. But it can also be more positive when they themselves make security claims. Uh, you know, security does not mean the same thing um, to like different agents. That's why it's so important to see its normative, to assess its normative application, implications within the contexts uh, which we are researching. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a more fuller answer, I would say, when it comes to <laughs> trying, you know, to fit in into the puzzle, into this sort of bundle of what security is all about. Uh, <laughs> and uh, on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for. Uh, the nice conversation it's been very interesting to hear more about your work and i wish you all the best with it thank you so much yes the chat was really nice indeed